We're in this uh, series, Guard Your Heart, and uh, on one of the prayer request cards, last week was not a prayer request, but a question, and the question was simply this, how do you guard your heart? Well, that's a great question. So I thought before we got into the heart of the message this morning, I'd try to answer that question real quickly and give you a couple general ways to do that. Uh, in the scripture, what you, have, you need to understand, in scripture, when we see the word heart, it is the symbol for the mind and the will. Now, that's not like our culture. In the, in the Hebrew mind, in the scriptures, the heart refers to the mind and the will. In our culture, it refers to the emotions, okay? So when you see a heart, you know, you think of the emotions. In, in the Hebrew mind, in scripture, the seat of the emotions was the digestive system, which makes really good sense because when you're stressed, when you're anxious, uh, when, when you're fearful, where does it affect you most? You feel it in your stomach, in your digestive system. So it makes sense. It just doesn't look good on a Valentine's Day card. So it <laughs> probably works better for us that we use the, the heart. But when, when you want to talk about guarding the heart, this, this, here's some ways that you can do that. Guard what you put into your mind. What you read and what you watch will have an impact. So be careful what you put into your mind. Guard your allegiance. Be judicious in what you choose as your priorities in life. Do your priorities draw you closer to God or do your priorities place barriers between you and God? So guarding your heart means guarding your allegiance. And then also guard your thoughts. Okay, when you guard your heart, you're guarding your thoughts. Uncontrolled thoughts will oftentimes lead to uncontrolled actions. So do your best not to focus on the things that you shouldn't, but to focus on the things that will help you live the life that God wants you to live. Okay? A couple thoughts on just guarding your heart. And if you've got other questions, we'll try to address those. It may not be in the sermon, but we'll try to figure out a way to answer them. Drop your questions off at the Welcome Center if you're on your way out or email us this week. We'll do our best. This morning, we're talking about breaking the habits that break our relationships with regard to guarding our hearts. And we're going to talk about breaking anger. Breaking anger. About a week and a half ago, on October the 10th, a lady boarded her flight in Orlando, Florida. You probably read about this. With her emotional support animal. Now, perhaps she assumed that since she was flying on Frontier Airlines, the call of the wild would be no problem. But as she got to the airlines, uh, she was not allowed to get on with her emotional support squirrel. <laughs> Frontier, as with other airlines, has a policy that does not allow rodents on the airplane. I'm, I'm appreciative of that policy. The defiant woman, however, and her furry companion refused to deplane. After delaying the flight for two hours... She was finally forced off the plane by law enforcement. The other non-squirrel-toting uh, passengers were understandably angry at being delayed two hours, and they cheered as the woman was forcibly removed. The antagonist herself exited the plane as angry as a crazed squirrel, using a less-than-polite finger gesture for the officials and the other passengers in the terminal. It was an angry place to be, all because of a squirrel. This, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, people. <laughs> this truth is stranger than fiction moment followed on the heels of a United Airlines flight last January when a woman wanted to bring her emotional support peacock on a flight from New Jersey. 
Now, okay, I understand the role of support dogs as aids to people with various conditions. These canines play an incredible role, even to the point of saving lives. They are great in what they do. But a support squirrel or peacock? Oh my goodness, a peacock's a beautiful, fascinating bird, but I've never sensed warmth and compassion in the eyes of a peacock. And as far as I'm concerned, Bullwinkle is the only one who needs the emotional support of a flying squirrel. <laughs> now, in our overly sensitive culture, I'm sure that even in using this story, I have offended or angered someone. You may think I'm insensitive to alternative support animals or that I'm taking a pot shot at airline rules and regulations or I'm belittling the rodents have rights to lobby. <laughs> but I'll be honest with you. I have no desire to fly commercially sitting behind the person with a support squirrel perched on her shoulder eyeing my complimentary peanuts. I don't have a good answer for the problem, but I'm thinking about creating a business that trains platypus, the platypus as a best animal companion. I mean, after all, the platypus should understand the need for emotional support given the fact that it looks like the leftovers of creation all fused together. <laughs> is it just me or is our society becoming angrier by the day? Liberals and conservatives are angry with one another, and it only escalates in an election year. The anger between races and cultural backgrounds and ideologies appears to be growing with every passing day. Shootings and bombings are often the outgrowth of uncontrolled anger. Road rage is not getting better. It's only getting worse. There's more anger in the workforce, more anger on the university campuses, more anger in homes and families. And it is that anger that is destroying our relationships. And the more inwardly focused we become as individuals, the more prevalent our anger becomes. And the more we insist on our own rights to the exclusion of others' rights, the fiercer our anger becomes. And when unleashed, anger can leave a trail of destruction in its wake. If guilt says, I owe you, anger says, you owe me. An angry person approaches life and relationships looking for payback, folks. And if you think this message isn't for you, let me remind you that all of us, all of us deal with anger to one degree or another. And an uncontrolled, unresolved, unmitigated, it is tearing our relationships apart. Statistically, statistically, one out of five Americans has an anger management problem. A Gallup poll found that one employee in six can recall a time in the previous 12 months when they were so annoyed at a colleague that they wanted to hit that person. One in six. The problem is not anger. It is the inability to control or manage our anger. Someone put it wisely. Anger is the prison we lock ourselves in while continuing to hold the keys. The Bible is certainly no stranger to the problem of anger. From the opening verses of Genesis to the closing lines of Revelation, anger is a hot red thread that weaves its destruction all through human history. 
And the farther we in our culture move away from God, the more negative results of anger we're going to experience. You see, I think that's the heart of the problem. We're moving ever farther away from the principles, the standards of God, his word, his spirit. And the, and the end result of that is that we're becoming angry and angrier. Why talk about anger this morning? Because every one of us is affected by it. And it is vital that we work on it, that we improve it, that we deal with it in a positive way so that it doesn't destroy our relationships. You see, we've got to guard our hearts from unrighteous anger. Well, there are just a few things I want to talk about real quickly. And, and, and first of all, I want to start with the reasons for anger. There are reasons for anger. And anger is not automatically a sin. You need to understand that. As a matter of fact, it can be a useful tool. When anger at abuse or mistreatment or injustice causes us to come to the aid of a hurting individual, it's a good tool. As Christians, we dare not ignore such abuses. We must not become apathetic about standing for what is right and lending a helping hand. It may sound odd this morning, but there are occasions when not being angry is the sin. Dr. David Siemens writes this. He said, anger is a divinely implanted emotion closely allied to our instinct for right. It is designed to be used for constructive spiritual purposes. The person who cannot feel anger at evil is a person who lacks enthusiasm for good. If you cannot hate wrong, it's very questionable whether you can really love righteousness. That's a powerful statement. You see, we should be concerned about the things of God. When anger causes us to defend God and his purposes, it's a good tool. There can be no doubt that Jesus was angry when he went into the temple, when he saw what was happening in the temple in Jerusalem and the abuse of the people there, the unethical behavior of those who were defrauding the exchange of foreign currency for temple currency had turned the temple into a palace of thieves, not a place of worship. And so Jesus drove out the money changers. Now, we must be vigilant in the church to make sure that we stay true to the things of God. The church hasn't always been so careful. As a matter of fact, the church in Corinth was guilty of tolerating divisions within the family, questioning Paul's authority, using pagan courts to settle disputes between believers, being weak on immorality, abusing spiritual gifts, diminishing the value of the Lord's Supper, and the list goes on. And so when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he writes in a stern tone. There's a righteous anger in the ink of his pen because of the way the church was ignoring the things of God. So, there is a right use of anger, but that's seldom our problem, is it? I mean, you know, we don't have to worry about the right use of anger. If we're, if we're using it rightly, everything's good. It's, <laughs> it's when we flare up for the wrong reasons that we struggle. Here's a few examples. We get angry when things don't go our way. Have you ever experienced that frustration? When life didn't turn out the way you anticipated? When you felt rejected by somebody else? How'd you respond? In Genesis chapter 4, Cain felt rejected when his offering was not as acceptable as his brother Abel's offering was. 
But instead of seeking to make this okay with God, that's where the issue was, he took out his anger on his brother Abel. The rejection of his offering caused him to be angry because Abel's was acceptable. And so instead of trying to find out, God, how do I need to change my heart and attitude? He killed his brother. First murder in scripture, he killed his brother. Genesis 4, this is what we find in verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. What a vivid picture of sin's power. A crouching animal just ready to pounce. Vicious. And when he pounces, we become his prey. But if you do what is right, sin has no power over us. So let us learn to master our anger. And because Cain didn't master his anger, it led to murder. In our anger, we may not be guilty of homicide, folks. But I'm guessing we've killed some important conversations along the way that should have been able to finish out. I'm pretty sure we've murdered some reputations of other people in our anger. And certainly, we have broken the hearts of the people we love. So when things don't go, the way you anticipate. When you don't get your way, don't let that uncage the beast in you. Guard your heart. Here's something else. Uh, we get angry when someone hurts us. You know what I mean. Somebody says the wrong thing, gives us a mean look, uses a harsh tone in their conversation with us, doesn't acknowledge our contribution to the cause, ignores us as we walk down the street. Uh, when that happens, we find ourselves just growing angry. You can just feel the, the anger moving up from your stomach into your throat and into your mind and your face getting red and, and, and we think, hey, two can play at this game. You just wait, buddy. I'll get you back. Isn't that the way it often happens? And our anger is oftentimes fueled by something well, completely unintentional. Have you ever stopped to think about the thing that hurts you or bothers you may not have been intended? I mean, that happens all the time. I'm aware of this. I try to watch it, but I know there are people that I miss walking up and down these hallways or out in the foyer. You may look at me and think I'm looking right at you. You may even wave, and I don't wave back, and you think, oh, he doesn't like me anymore. What's wrong? Well, you know, what's going on here? I, I'm going to tell you, it's not intentional. There's just a lot of things on my mind on a Sunday morning. I may be thinking about something that needs to be done. Or I may be reflecting on some bad news that somebody just shared that's happening in their life. Or I may be thinking about what i got to change in the sermon before I preach it again. You see, it's never intentional. But, but we get like that, don't we, when things don't happen the way they should. I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt that you've been up all night when you're not off during the sermon if you'll give me the benefit of the doubt that it's not intentional when I miss saying howdy out in the hallway. Deal? You see, anger oftentimes results from unintentional things that hurt us. 
And we get angry when circumstances are out of our control. We like to oversee our lives. We like to be in charge. But so often things happen that we simply cannot control. And the more those circumstances spiral out of control, the more helpless we feel. Unfortunately, our response to that helplessness is often an attitude of anger. Look at how many fights break out at sporting events. People who are normally mild-mannered become screaming banshees when their team is losing or when the officials make a call they disagree with. And when anger controls our minds and our thoughts, that's when we begin to harbor ill will or grudges against another. And I'm telling you, folks, carrying grudges is hard work. And the more grudges you're carrying, the more it weighs you down, the more draining it becomes. It'll just sap the energy right out of you. So don't let thoughts of angry vengeance dominate your waking moments. Guard your hearts against such things. Because here's the deal. Anger has consequences. And we need to remember that. We're going to take a look at, at anger's consequences. Now, I love the fact that Scripture also tells us the whole story of the, of the great people in the Bible. Have you noticed the fact that it doesn't just explore the good things? The Bible also points out the flaws and the, and the character issues in people. Moses is one of those. Moses is a great leader. I mean, incredible man. But he also struggled with anger most of his life. He once killed an Egyptian taskmaster out of anger. And near the end of his 40 years of wandering, leading the Israelites through the wilderness, near the end of that time, he lost it when the Israelites complained for the umpteenth time about not having enough food and water. And this is what, what we find. So Moses comes before God, and in Numbers 20, this is where we pick up the story. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now, I'm telling you, there, there, there are few people that rise to the greatness of Moses. But there's a consequence here for his anger. God said, Speak to the rock, Moses. And Moses, in his anger and frustration with the Israelites, did three things of his own volition. Number one, he preached an angry sermon. God didn't say anything about preaching a sermon. He got up there and said, listen, you rebels. And then number two, he assumed credit. Do you notice that? Must we bring, we? What, what's the we here? How about you? I can't get water out of any rock. This was not the power of Moses or Aaron. This was the power of God at work. Uh, Moses, and I don't know if Moses isn't even including God in this. When he says we, it might have just been he and Aaron. You know, must we bring you water out of this rock? And thirdly, he struck the rock twice with the staff in anger. And God in his grace supplied the water despite Moses' reaction. But there was a consequence. 
Because Moses didn't trust God enough to obey his command and because he dishonored God by making the Lord's involvement seem petty or even insignificant, Moses was not allowed to lead the Israelites into the promised land. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses prays three times for God to change his mind and the third time God told him the answer is still no and don't ask me again. Now you say, boy, God was really mad with with Moses. I don't, I don't know that God was angry with Moses. He just said, you want to play that kind of a game, there's a consequence. You cannot dishonor me in front of the Israelites and get by with it. God didn't stop loving Moses. God didn't hate Moses. Nothing like that. Moses didn't lose his salvation over this. He just didn't get to take the people across the Jordan into the promised land. As a matter of fact, when the time came for him to die, God took him up on the top of Mount Pisgah where he could look out over the entire promised land where they'd been heading for 40 years. And he said, this is the land I'm going to give to your people. And then Moses died on the top of the Mount Pisgah somewhere. God buried him up there and took him right home to the ultimate promised land. Not a bad deal. You see, Moses didn't lose his salvation, but there was a consequence that was not removed for him in this life. When you and I are angry and uncontrolled in that anger, there will be a consequence for that anger. You see, when we respond in anger, we lose control of our feelings and we become an emotional roller coaster. And when it's over, we are utterly spent. Don't waste your limited emotional energy on anger. When we respond in anger, we hurt people we love. We say things that we ought not to say, or we don't say the things that desperately need to be said. Lawrence J. Peter wrote this. He said, speak when you're angry, and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. (laughs) He's right. Unchecked anger easily prompts verbal and physical abuse. The walking wounded among us are often the people we love most who are wounded by our anger. When we respond in anger, we lose respect in the eyes of our peers. It's hard to have respect for an angry person's leadership, judgment, or counsel. When we respond in anger, it makes us physically ill. Anger only enhances ulcers, hypertension, cardiac issues, and the list goes on. When you have uncontrolled anger, you're making yourself sick. And when we respond in anger, we dishonor God. How does an out-of-control life point others to a God of grace and mercy? It doesn't. We dishonor him with our anger. Okay, well, how do we deal with anger? Okay, let me give you some keys to defeating anger. We're going to wind this up real quick, all right? So hang with me just a couple more minutes. Keys to defeating anger. Number one, resolve conflicts that fuel your anger. You take the lead. Matthew chapter 5. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had this to say. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Don't let problems fester. Don't let issues remain unsettled. Take the lead to resolve the problem. And you might discover that the problem isn't near as bad as you thought it was. But in the process of resolving it, you'll discover we're going to make this right. Here's the second thing. Avoid ill-tempered people. Proverbs 22, verse 24. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. That takes no explanation. Just watch who your friends are. Number three, don't go to bed angry. Ephesians 4, 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Good sense. Going to bed angry, not, not, not the recipe for a good sleep. Number four, develop self-control. 
1 Peter 5, 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. During the Apollo space program, NASA would often speak of a controlled burn. It was a timed and controlled explosion of power that was used to either change the direction of the spacecraft or to break out of gravitational pull. You see, great explosive power under control is a good thing. Explosive power out of control destroys. Anger must always be a controlled burn to be productive. Number five, imitate the example of God. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Be slow to anger, folks. Abound in love, and it will get you much farther down the road. And number six, this is the toughest. Forgive readily. Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness is a necessary choice. Without it, you cannot let go of the grudge that's pulling you deeper into the quicksand of bitterness. Forgiveness isn't letting the other person off the hook. It's letting go of the pain that's hurting us. As Christians, we're not to treat each other as we have been treated by the world. We're to treat one another as Christ has treated us. You see, we gave up our right to be angry and hold grudges when we started following Jesus and wearing his name. We must learn to forgive, not because the other person deserves the forgiveness, but because God has forgiven us. And we need to get rid of the burden that's weighing us down. I will tell you, forgiveness is not for the other person, it's for me. If I don't let go of it, guess who's hurting all the time? I am. What's the best response to the grace and the mercy of God? Extend the mercy and grace of God to others. Trust me, you're not going to feel like doing this. But our emotions are not a barometer of the right thing to do. Someday the right feelings will catch up with the right actions. Forgiveness doesn't mean restoration. It just means you're taking this burden off and letting God handle it. And you see, you and I are never closer to God than when we forgive. Forgiveness breaks the hold of anger and guards our hearts from sin. I'm convinced the only person who can help us do that is Jesus Christ. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.